This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we honor the year in music for 1991 along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1991. We also look at the case for putting the Smiths into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, plus our Spotlight Hall of Fame is the Songwriters Hall of Fame in Hollywood, California. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 1991. In music, the way that music charts were formulated changed in 1991 as Billboard magazine started using the Nielsen SoundScan computer software in order to give a more accurate version of what was selling and to also make it less corruptible. At least until record labels and artists started to game the system by doing things like giving away their albums with the purchase of a cell phone or some other product and letting those sales count. There were still other problems at first. For instance, the Tower Records music chain stores didn't use the same software as everyone else, which skewed numbers until every store chain finally got on the same page. Three people were killed during an audience crush at an ACDC concert. Hollywood's famed record plant studio also closed down in 1991. The first Lollapalooza tour was held that year. And Aerosmith, Janet Jackson, and the Rolling Stones all signed mega-million-dollar record contracts that year. The biggest album of the year was Metallica's Black Album. However, Nirvana's Nevermind and Grunge officially broke through to the mainstream as Pearl Jam also released their album 10 and Soundgarden released Bad Motorfinger. The Seattle Sound, as grunge was originally called, also was the final nail in the coffin of the hair band and hard rock era as going forward bands like Loverboy, Rat, and Cinderella started to lose favor with the public, at least until 80s nostalgia kicked in during the past five, six years or so. Def Leppard released the album Adrenalize, which was the last successful gasp from the hair band era. Guns N' Roses actually landed the first punch to hair bands with their earlier album, Appetite for Destruction, in 1987, but helped to finish off corporate hard rock bands with their 1991 albums, Use Your Illusions 1 and 2. This isn't to say that metal was dead. Nah, not by a long shot. Metal just moved overseas as bands from the Scandinavian countries became popular. Bands like Suffocation and Entombed. Alternative rock also started to take off as R.E.M. released Out of Time, The Smashing Pumpkins released Gish, Toad the Wet Sprocket released Fear, and The Red Hot Chili Peppers released Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Other big albums that year were Natalie Cole's Unforgettable with Love, Michael Jackson's Dangerous, Simply Red's Stars, The KLF's White Room, Dire Straits on Every Street, Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tears, Brian Adams' Waking Up the Neighbors, Prince's Diamonds and Pearls, Michael Bolton's Time, Love, and Tenderness, the soundtrack to the Disney animated movie Beauty and the Beast, and Queen's final album, While Freddie Mercury Was Still Alive, 
innuendo. The biggest song that year was the theme song from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Brian Adams, everything I do, I do it for you. Good times. Whitney Houston sang one of the most memorable versions of the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl that year. Her version was released as a single and became a huge hit as people were caught up in the patriotic fever since the Gulf War had just started a week or so earlier than the Super Bowl. That's the original Gulf War, not Gulf War II electric boogaloo that George W. Bush had in Iraq. Other hit songs of 1991 included I Wanna Sex You Up from Color Me Bad, CNC Music Factory's Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now, Paula Abdul's Rush Rush, One More Try from Timmy T, Unbelievable from EMF, Extreme with More Than Words, High Fives I Like the Way, The First Time from Surface, and Baby Baby from Amy Grant. Janet Jackson became the first artist to have seven songs from the same album, in this case Rhythm Nation, to make it onto the top five of the Billboard singles chart. Garth Brooks became a megastar with the album Rope in the Wind, helping to move pop country to the forefront for pretty much the entire 1990s. Other big albums included Don't Rock the Jukebox by Alan Jackson, It's About to Change by Travis Tritt, for My Broken Heart by Reba McIntyre, Pocket Full of Gold by Vince Gill, Don't Go Near the Water from Sammy Kershaw, Heroes from Paul Overstreet, Brand New Man from Brooks and Dunn, Aces from Susie Boggess, and What Do I Do With Me from Tanya Tucker. On the country's singles chart, Garth Brooks had four number one songs with Unanswered Prayers, The Thunder Rolls, Shameless, and Two of a Kind Working on a Full House. George Strait had three number one songs with You Know Me Better Than That, If I Know Me, and I've Come to Expect It From You. And Brooks and Dunn had two number one songs with Brand New Man and My Next Broken Heart. Alternative rap took hold, beginning with Tribe Called Quest's Low End Theory and continuing with classic rap albums from Gangstar and De La Soul. 80s hip-hop superstars Public Enemy came out with their last big album, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black. MC Light, Queen Latifah, and Naughty by Nature also released hit albums in 1991. Big songs from the year included The Ghetto Boys' Minds Playing Tricks on Me. A Tribe Called Quest, Check the Rhyme, and Scenario with Leaders of the New School. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's Summertime. Naughty by Nature's OPP. Ice-T's Original Gangster. Black Sheep's The Choice is Yours. Cypress Hill's How I Could Just Kill a Man. Main Source's Live at the Barbecue. And De La Soul's Millie Pulled a Pistol on Santa. In dance music, DJ Magazine, which was a reboot of the magazine Jocks, started publication in 1991. Trip Hop made its debut of sorts when Massive Attack released their album Blue Lines. The Prodigy also released their first single, Charlie. Legendary DJ Carl Cox burst onto the dance scene for the first time with the song I Want You. 
The city of Frankfurt, Germany, became the capital of trance music for a time as producers like Resistance D brought their spin to a dance genre that was beginning to find its way to a wider audience by then. Eurodance held its own with hit songs from artists like Black Box, Crystal Waters, Enigma, London Beat, Latour, the KLF, Karina, and Stereo MCs. It would be about another 20 years or so before electronic dance music completely exploded and became the dominant genre of the 2010s. However, pop dance, as it was known back then, did very well in 1991 with dance hits by D-Light, Madonna, Mariah Carey, Kathy Dennis, PM Dawn, CNC Music Factory, Prince, and Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Even U2 got into the electronica era with their EDM-infused album Octung Baby. Christian contemporary music broke through in 1991 as artists Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant both had hit albums. Luis Miguel brought boleros back to the mainstream in the 1990s with his album Romance. Other Latin music artists who were big in 1991 included Ana Gabriel, Miriam Hernand, Juan Gabriel, Cheyenne, Daniela Romo, Bronco, Maz, Selena y los Dinos, and Luis Enrique. Musicals or revivals of musicals that were around in 1991 included The Will Rogers Follies, Forbidden Broadway, Volume 2, Phantom, The Secret Garden, and Children of Eden. Musical movies and documentaries that were released included For the Boys, The Five Heartbeats, Stepping Out, The Commitments, the animated movies and American Tale Five Goes West, Rockadoodle, Rover Dangerfield, The Magic Riddle, and Beauty and the Beast, along with Madonna's tour documentary Truth or Dare. Bands that formed in 1991 included Two Unlimited, Ab Logic, Black Street, Belly, Bone Thugs and Harmony, Counting Crows, Chemical Brothers, Cake, House of Pain, Luscious Jackson, The Muffs, Oasis, Painkiller, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, Power Man 5000, Primitive Radio Gods, Rage Against the Machine, Utah Saints, and the 3-6 Mafia. Bands that broke up, of course, before their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus in 1991 included the two live crew, Alias, Animal Logic, Bad English, Big Pig, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, Devo, Dio, NWA, Y&T, Modern English, The Traveling Woolburys, Transvision Vamp, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam, Talk Talk, Talking Heads, Throwing Muses, Stetisonic, Bruce Hornsby and the Range, and the Fat Boys. The Knack and Procol Harum actually reformed in 1991. Artists who were born in 1991 include Ed Sheeran, Carol G., Louis Tomlinson of One Direction, Charlie Puth, Jesse Nelson, and Leanne Pinnock, both of Little Mix, Anne-Marie, along with rappers DaBaby, Offset, Quavo, Young Thug, NF, Fetty Wap, Moneybag Yo, PNB Rock, and Tyler the Creator. November 24th of 1991 was the date that Freddie Mercury of Queen passed away from complications from AIDS and Eric Carr of Kiss also passed away that day from cancer. Legendary festival promoter Bill Graham was killed in a helicopter crash. 
Also passing away in 1991 was Eric Clapton's son, Connor, who fell out of a window in New York City. His passing became the subject of Clapton's hit single, Tears in Heaven. Seven members of Reba McIntyre's touring band passed away in a plane crash that year. Other musical artists who passed away included Steve Clark from Def Leppard, jazz trumpet player Buck Clayton, composer Ernst Krennic, singer and actor Yves Montand, singer Mort Schumann, musician Andres Panifnik, singer Tennessee Ernie Ford, musician Ole Biech, singer Roy Black, jazz great Miles Davis, singer Dottie West, violinist Zeno Franciscati, jazz saxophonist Charlie Barnett, pianist Claudio Aurora, jazz saxophonist Stan Getz, Temptation singer David Ruffin, singer Gene Clark, Egyptian singer Mohammed Abdel Wahab, composer Carmine Coppola, guitarist Johnny Thunders, musician Steve Marriott, composer Doc Palmas, guitar maker Leo Fender, French singer Serge Gainsbourg, lyricist Howard Ashman, and singer and actor Renato Rascal. In award ceremonies for the music of 1991, at the Grammy Awards, Natalie Cole won three of the four major awards, including Album of the Year for Unforgettable with Love and Song and Record of the Year for her digitalized duet with her father, Nat King Cole, simply called Unforgettable. Mark Cohen, whose big hit that year was Walking in Memphis, won Best New Artist. At the American Music Awards, the big winners were Color Me Bad, CNC Music Factory, Michael Bolton, Paula Abdul, Luther Vandross, Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre, and Brian Adams. At the Billboard Music Awards, Mariah Carey was Artist of the Year. At the MTV Video Music Awards, R.E.M. won Video of the Year for the song Losing My Religion. Luther Vandross won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards, and Garth Brooks and Reba McIntyre won the music categories at the People's Choice Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Rome, Italy that year, Carola from Sweden won for the song Fangad av en Stormwind. Garth Brooks won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards, and he also won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Seal won Best British Album for his self-titled debut album, and Queen won Best Song for These Are the Days of Our Lives at the Brit Awards. Brian Adams won Entertainer of the Year at the Juno Awards. Baby Animals won Album of the Year for their self-titled album, and Yothu Yindi won Song of the Year for Treaty, the Filthy Lucre remix, at the Aria Music Awards. At the Tony Awards, the Will Rogers Follies won Best Musical, and Fiddler on the Roof won Best Revival of a Musical. At the Academy Awards for the Music of 1991, the movie Beauty and the Beast won Best Score for Alan Menken and also Best Song for its self-titled theme song. The Pulitzer Prize was shared between Shulamit Ran for Symphony, Bright Shang for Four Movements for Piano, and Charles Fussell for Wild. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on January 16th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. 
The mood of the ceremony was overshadowed by the start of the Gulf War that year, which started while the ceremony was going on that night with an attack on the city of Baghdad in Iraq. In fact, during that night's attack, CNN, then only known as a fledgling cable news network that some people kind of knew about, were one of the first and few news outlets who were broadcasting the attack live from a Baghdad rooftop. It turned CNN into must-watch television that year. Even people at the ceremony were trying to find televisions to watch. That night was the unofficial night that the 24-7 news cycle became a thing as people were glued to their TV sets as the war unfolded, making CNN famous. During the ceremony, the hall inducted record executive Nasui Erdogan into the non-performers category. Band leader Dave Bartholomew and record producer Ralph Bass were also inducted into the non-performers category. Howlin' Wolf was inducted into the early influencers category. And in the performers category, the hall inducted John Lee Hooker, Laverne Baker, The Impressions, Wilson Pickett, Jimmy Reed, Ike and Tina Turner, and this next group. The group The Birds were formed in 1964 in Los Angeles, California. The original group lineup was Roger McGuinn, David Crosby, Gene Clark, Michael Clark, and Chris Hillman. McGuinn, Crosby, and Gene Clark all came up doing the folk music coffee shop circuit back in the day. And while the three of them loved folk music, they were, like everybody else at the time, influenced by the rock music that was coming out of England. The three of them recruited Hillman and Michael Clark to complete their group. After starting out playing rock music, the Birds wanted to combine folk music with rock music and to also bring in vocal harmonies. And while Bob Dylan was considered the king of folk music at that time, the Birds actually were the ones who brought folk music to the mainstream by combining them with the vocal harmonies, along with McGuinn's signature Rickenbacker 360-12 string guitar, and the Birds became one of the most influential groups of the 1960s. In 1964, the group was signed to Columbia Records. In January 1965, they entered Columbia Recording Studios in Hollywood, California to start work on their debut album. On June 21, 1965, they released their debut album, Mr. Tambourine Man, which included, of course, a cover of Bob Dylan's song of the exact same name. When they recorded the song Mr. Tambourine Man in late January 1965, their producer, Terry Melcher, didn't think that the group worked well as musicians together yet. So, Terry kept Roger McGuinn's guitar playing and brought in the Hall of Fame session musicians known as the Wrecking Crew to play on the songs Mr. Tambourine Man and the track's B-side, I Knew I'd Want You, making McGuinn the only bird member to play an instrument on both of those tracks. Ironically, it was their version of Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man that was the bellwether song to the folk rock mainstream revolution. 
Dylan's original version was released as part of his Bringing It All Home album in March of 1965. One month later, on April 12th, with Dylan's blessing no less, the Birds released their cover version of the song, with McGuinn doing lead vocal duties on that. The Birds version became a big hit, hitting number one in America, Great Britain, South Africa, and Ireland. The Birds version is now considered not just the start of folk rock's popularity in the mainstream, but also one of the greatest singles of all time, and the album, Mr. Tambourine Man, is considered one of the biggest moments in pop music history. Their second album, Turn, 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 was recorded between June and November of 1965 and released on December 6, 1965. The album continued their innovative folk rock style and went to number 17 on the album's chart in America. The song Turn, Turn, Turn also became a huge hit, going to number one in America. Their third album, Fifth Dimension, was recorded from January to May of 1966 and was released on July 18th of 1966. It took the group in a new direction, moving them into psychedelic rock, especially with their 1966 song, Eight Miles High. By 1967, the usual band tensions started to rear their ugly heads. Gene Clark left the group due to anxiety issues, along with a really bad case of stage fright. After their fourth album, 1967's Younger Than Yesterday, both Michael Clark and David Crosby wore out their welcome with Roger McGuinn, and both of them were bounced out of the Birds in 1967. After two more albums, the Birds helped to pioneer country rock with their 1968 album, Sweethearts of the Rodeo, with songs like You Ain't Going Nowhere. Graham Parsons had joined the group by that point and was influential with the recording of this album, which was recorded in Nashville and Hollywood between March and May of 1968, as Graham Parsons was very much into country music at that time and brought it into the making of this album. When the album was released on August 30th, 1968, the reviews were mixed at best, as some critics didn't actually like the blending of country and rock music. It also didn't do well on the charts, only getting as high as number 77 in America and not even charting overseas. However, it is credited as not only pioneering country rock, but also influencing a lot of future groups like, of course, the Eagles. Right around the release of Sweethearts of the Rodeo, Graham Parsons left the Birds due to his opposition to the apartheid regime of South Africa, where the Birds were actually slated to play. He decided not to play in accordance with his opposition. According to some people, though, Graham used it as an excuse to quit the band so that he could hang out more with Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones, who he had become big friends with. Chris Hillman left the Birds as well, not for a principled reason or to hang out with Keith Richards, mind you. The group continued on with McGuinn helming a new version of the Birds until 1972, releasing five more albums. The original members then came back in 1972-1973 to record what became their final album, Birds, which was released on March 7, 1973. And then the group officially broke up. 
McGuinn got together with Gene Clark and Chris Hillman from 1977 to 1981. Then Clark got together a new version of the group between 1989 to 1991, but was sued by the original members of the group who wanted to do a reunion tour of their own by the name The Birds. When The Birds were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991, the original five members showed up to accept and to also perform. It would be their last performance together as the full original lineup of the group. The main thread during the group's 1964-1973 run was Roger McGuinn, who was there throughout all of the versions of the 1964-73 groups. Gene Clark, who actually won the right to use the bird's name in that lawsuit from earlier, was there on and off from 1964 to 1967 and from, of course, 1972 to 1973 when they all got back together. But he passed away from heart issues only a few months after their Hall of Fame performance in 1991. Michael Clark was there on and off from 1964 to 1967 and, of course, between 72 and 73 as well, but he passed away from liver issues in 1993. David Crosby was there on and off as well from 64 to 67 and again from 72 to 73, but he just recently passed away in 2023 from COVID-19 complications. When Crosby left the group, he became part of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who were themselves inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997, and then they added Neil Young to that group to become CSNY, or Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And with three of the original members passing away by now, this leaves McGuinn and Hillman at least as of this recording, as the only original members who are still alive. Out of the group's replacement members during their 1964-73 creative period, Graham Parsons, Kevin Kelly, Clarence White, and Skip Batten have all passed away. Kevin Kelly was there in 1968 and passed away from natural causes in 2002. Clarence White was there from 1968 to 73 and was struck and killed by a drunk driver in 1973. Skip Batten was there from 1970 to 1973 and passed away in 2003 from Alzheimer's disease. Graham Parsons was there for a hot minute in 1968 for the Sweethearts album and then quit. He passed away in 1973 from a drug and alcohol overdose, then had his body famously kidnapped out to Joshua Tree National Forest in California by his road manager and his assistant at the time, and set on fire in a Viking funeral. What was left of his body was eventually buried in New Orleans. The entire theft of the body has its own story and is worthy of its own podcast someday, but if you want to watch a movie about the whole thing, then check out 2003's movie Grand Theft Parsons, which starred Johnny Knoxville, Christina Applegate, Robert Forster, and Michael Shannon. Gene Parsons, who was there from 1968 to 1972, and John York, who was there from 1968 to 1969, are, as of this recording, still alive. The Birds put out 12 albums, 3 live albums, 6 EPs, and 47 compilation albums. 
Of those, nine of their albums went top 40 in America, with their 1967 Greatest Hits album hitting number six. They also released 29 singles. Of those, seven went top 40 with 1965's Turn, Turn, Turn and Mr. Tambourine Man both hitting number one. They were nominated for seven Grammy Awards, winning three of them, including Best New Artist in 1965. Their harmonic style, along with their sound, are still part of music today, influencing everyone from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, R.E.M., The Eagles, and The Smiths. Inducted by Don Henley of 1998 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, The Eagles, Chris Hillman, David Crosby, Gene Clark, Michael Clark, and Roger McGuinn. The Birds, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991, and we have put a selection of their music onto this week's podcast playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast, where we go over the events, music releases, births, and passings for that day in music history. The Music History Today podcast drops each and every day, including on the weekends, on this channel, the Music History Today network, and also on our Music History Today network YouTube page. Now, back to the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting the Manchester, England alternative rock icons, the Smiths, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As we always do, to the tale of the tape we go. The Smiths released four studio albums, one live album, ten compilation albums, and EPs. Of those, only 1987's final album, Strange Ways, Here We Come, went to the top 40 in America, resting at number 29. In the UK, though, it was a completely different story, with all of their studio albums hitting number one. The Smiths also released 24 singles. Of those, only 1985's iconic single, How Soon Is Now, made it into the top 40 in America, topping out, though, at number 36. Meanwhile, in the UK, 20 of their songs hit the top 40. Of those 20, one hit number 25, one hit number 16, one hit number 8, one hit number 3, two hit number 2, and 14 of them hit number 1. As far as critical acclaim and influence goes, Rolling Stone magazine put all four of the group's studio albums into the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. They've also been called one of the 10 most influential British artists of all time, they influenced groups like Blur, Oasis, Suede, along with, of all people, Rick Astley, which is a new one. That resume is more than a lot of groups that are in the Hall of Fame. So, what's keeping the Smiths out? After all, they have actually been nominated before. One theory concerns the group's controversial genius of a lead singer, Morrissey, whose political views are, well controversial, to be nice about it. If you don't know what they are, Google them. There's just way too many of them to discuss here. Some of those views, I'm sure, have alienated more than a few Hall voters, though, which is probably hindering their chances. 
Otherwise, there's really no reason why it's taken this long for the Smiths to be inducted. Morrissey's political views, though, should not keep the group out, because honestly, the Smiths deserve to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And to prove it, we're putting their music also onto this week's podcast playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. The Songwriters Hall of Fame was started in 1969 by Johnny Mercer and publishers Abe Ullman and Howie Richmond as a way to honor some of the most forgotten and disrespected people in the music industry, the songwriters. After all, you can't have a song without a songwriter. Even AI can't do it. The Hall has an impressive group running it, including Chairman Nile Rogers, along with other greats such as Neo, Desmond Child, Samantha Cox, Patrice Russian, and Paul Williams. In order to become eligible for induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, according to their website, quote, a songwriter with a notable catalog of songs qualifies for induction 20 years after the first commercial release of a song, end quote. The Hall also runs programs with music schools and universities and also has scholarship programs available. Since 2010, the Hall of Fame exhibit has been part of the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, California. Its hours of operation are Sunday to Thursday from 10.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., and closed on Tuesdays. However, check with the Grammy Museum's website for updated hours and pricing as their times shift with each season, it would seem. There were plans to construct a physical hall in the basement of the famous Brill Building in New York City, but there hasn't been word on the progress of that lately. Songhall.org is their website, although you should also check the Grammy Museum's website for updated hours of operation and the ticket pricing. And that website is grammymuseum.org, and we'll put both of those links into this week's show notes. Chuck Berry was born on October 18, 1926, in St. Louis, Missouri. From the beginning, Chuck was interested in music. He performed during high school, but once he got out of high school, he settled into normal life, got married, and worked in an assembly plant assembling cars. He still had the music bug, though, so he started performing with the Johnny Johnson Trio. And it was there that he honed his showmanship skills, having studied what guitarist T-Bone Walker was doing on stage. One day in May of 1955, Barry went to Chicago, Illinois. He happened to meet the great Muddy Waters, who told him to have a talk with Leonard Chess of Chess Records. Chess took a look at Barry. They saw that rhythm and blues was beginning to go down in popularity, and they were actually looking to stretch their sound into new genres, and they thought that Barry might be the person to actually help them do that. He had a bunch of hits in the first decade of his career, from classics like Johnny B. Good to No Particular Place to Go to rock and roll music. Barry geared his music towards teenagers. He talked about good times, cars, girls, and fun. 
His stage act became legendary, especially when he bent down and hopped across the stage on one leg, which became known as the duck walk. He made a good living with his touring. In short, he became the template for other artists to copy. In 1988, the Grammy Hall of Fame inducted Chuck's first big hit. Not only was it his first big hit, but it was also one of the first rock and roll songs. Maybelline was a song that was a reworking of the song Ida Red by Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. The song is the template for rock and roll songs. It has, of course, cars, women, and a great guitar solo. Barry used to sing it during his club gigs before he finally recorded it. Chess Records wanted a few changes to it, though, including changing the name of the song from Ida Red. See, Chess didn't want to get sued for using the title. Legend has it that someone looked on the floor of the studio and saw a box of Maybelline cosmetics, thought that it would fit the song perfectly, and added an extra L to Maybelline in order to get around those pesky copyright laws. See, even back then, copyright laws were interesting. Plus, they added bass to the song in order to make it sound less like a hillbilly song, quote-unquote. They also changed the melody because even back then it was common practice to take songs and alter them a little without people getting too crazy about it. These days, of course, if you did that, you'd get a multi-million dollar lawsuit and social media storm to go along with it. Maybelline was released in July of 1955 and became a huge hit. It was number one on the R&B charts and crossed over onto Billboard's pop charts where it went top five. The rock and roll revolution was in full swing after that. As with most acts, though, with the good comes the bad, and Chuck Berry was unfortunately no different. Berry was busted as a child for armed robbery. In 1962, he served one and a half years of a three-year sentence for transporting a minor across state lines. Some, however, believe that that was actually a trumped-up charge based on racism. He also later in life got caught for tax evasion and was also sued for filming women changing their clothes in a bathroom. The latter charge he denied, but the suit was settled out of court. Chuck continued to play almost a hundred shows a year worldwide, and then cut back to playing at least once a month at a local restaurant near St. Louis where he lived. Chuck Berry lived to be 90 years old, passing away on March 18th, 2017. Today, Chuck Berry is considered one of the great pioneers of rock and roll. When the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted its first class in 1986, Chuck Berry's name was front and center on the first ballot. On Rolling Stone Magazine's Greatest Artists of All Time list, he is ranked at number five. Six of his songs made Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list, with Johnny B. Good being the highest at number seven. Johnny B. Good is also the only rock and roll song that was put onto that gold record on the Voyager spacecraft that's out in outer space at this moment. I believe it has actually gotten out of the solar system by now. Father of rock and roll indeed. The father of rock and roll, Mr. Chuck Berry. 
inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in Los Angeles, California in 1986, and we have put his greatest hits onto this week's podcast playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening.